Hi, it's Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's the 30th of July, 2015, and my guest today is Denise Pope, whose newest book is Overloaded and Underprepared, Strategies for Stronger Schools and Healthy, Successful Kids. Denise, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I really loved the book. Uh, we'll dive into it in a couple of minutes. But uh, could you kind of rehearse what the problem is? You know, what's what, what's the issue here that the title is alluding to? So overloaded and underprepared really is referring to the fact that we're seeing more and more kids today, uh, whether you are a kid in a highly elite high school taking multiple advanced placement classes, um, working on several things after school, maybe you're an athlete, maybe you're a musician, you're really overloaded at the top, or maybe you're a typical kid, but you're feeling really overloaded because you have to pass the state exit exam. And so you're doing all sorts of, um, you're feeling all sorts of pressure to pass something that you don't know that you're going to pass. We see kids who are overloaded, and the irony is everyone's doing this in the name of education. Everyone's doing this in the name of preparing them for the future. But what we're seeing is when these kids, both, both groups and all in between, get out into college or into the world after college, they're really not prepared with the skills that we need them to have to succeed. Skills like critical thinking, co basic communication skills, um, how to self-regulate, how to get along with others, how to think creatively, um, global understanding. So you have that sort of phrase of kids who may be book smart, um, but sort of real life dumb, <laughs> um, and or kids who, who crammed and crammed and crammed and didn't even retain the very information that they were supposed to learn deeply in school. It does feel as though those who are successful in school will often even admit they're successful at managing the adult expectations for measures of success rather than that they're good learners. Right, right. I mean, that was kind of my first book, right? Doing school. The kids who do well um, know how to play the game. They know how to do school. They raise their hand when they don't know the answer because you got to look smart. And um, you want the adults, at the very least, to think that you're smart and on task. And you find all sorts of shortcuts and ways to get around that. So there's an obvious concern, and you address it early on. But it's that you're really talking about high-achieving students here. Right, I mean, this group that's overloaded and underprepared is a small segment of the larger student body. You could write a comparable book called Not Engaged and, and Not Even Participating. So how does focusing on that smaller sliver of students help raise the bigger pictures? Right, so two answers to that. One answer is um, if these are considered to be the, the, the schools where it's working, where we are succeeding, where kids are achieving and, and, and meeting those test scores and, and um, uh, standards, and I am showing that they're still not prepared, that's a problem. The second answer is, surprisingly, um, some of our schools, even though they're high achieving, uh, and, 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 and that definition, by the way, is, is sort of a, a, one that we use, which is, majority of the kids are going on to post-secondary options. So high achieving means that most of your kids are going to go to college, whether that's community college or a four-year college or some other post-secondary option. Um, 
many of those schools have uh, 50% of their kids on free and reduced lunch. Many of the schools that we work with have almost none of the kids on free and reduced lunch. So from a socioeconomic standpoint, we do work with a range of schools, but from an achievement standpoint, you're right. It's a, it's a, it's a sliver. And usually that's the sliver that's considered to be working and successful. And I'm sort of challenging that notion of success. That was the message I got. Although it's, it, it feels like it's sort of brief in the book, but the message I got was, if we're not even succeeding with the ones that we think we're succeeding with, then this is the, the broader problem. I, I, I of course, uh, probably didn't read every word in the book, but I read the great majority of it, the amount of time I, that I had, right? Um, but I spent several hours with it and really enjoyed it. I didn't see any mention of student suicides, and I thought, given where you're based and given the stories that I hear coming out of the Bay Area, is that not, uh, is that too hot, too much of a hot button issue to talk about or did I just miss it in the book? No, you didn't miss it. Um, we, we really grappled with that. We are in an area, sadly right now, that's in the middle of a double suicide cluster and a lot of attention has been placed on Palo Alto and Silicon Valley California. Although recently there's been a lot of focus on suicides at the higher ed level. Um, and also there are clearly other suicide clusters across the U.S. that haven't been uh, sort of under such media scrutiny. That said, one of the things we know about suicide clusters is that you have to be very careful when you report on it or mention it in a book. Um, so one purposeful reason why we don't mention the suicides is a contagion effect. And um, you don't want a teenager to read our book and, you know, get the idea um, if they're depressed that there is a way out uh, in that form. That's one reason. The other reason is we're really not a suicide prevention intervention per se. What we do is work with schools where the stress levels are high, uh, where the climate may not be appropriate and healthy for kids, and we are trying to change that. And we do have a whole chapter called "The Climate of Care," where you are, where we show how we help schools come up with systems like advisories or um, uh, working on mindfulness or meditation exercises, wellness programs to help ease the stress, to help the kids feel like they are cared for and hopefully then catch some of those kids who are really in need, um, who are feeling suicidal and or so depressed that it may lead to that. So even though we're not a suicide prevention organization, we feel like what we do can really impact the climate that in effect will ideally help kids find coping strategies um, for severe depression and anxiety. Um, and at the very least, deal with all the many, many kids who, for whatever reason, are feeling that they're not cared for, who are not feeling um, like they belong in school, um, all of these things that can agitate um, kids who are predisposed genetically for um, depression and anxiety. One of my favorite vignettes in the book was the school where they made an index card for each student and passed them around to all of the teachers and staff. and. You know, who, have you, who are you actually in contact with? Which students do you actually spend any time with or have you gotten to know? And then to see which students were really just falling through the cracks. I loved that particular example. 
Yeah, and, and that's the Wheatley School in New York, and they, they did this a long time ago in reaction to a student who was falling through the cracks, and um, it's something that's taken off now. Some schools call it the DOT project, um, but you're really making sure that every kid has an adult who who at least knows them, knows their name, and maybe has had some kind of um, uh, interaction with them. The The flip side of that is sometimes I hear where, where schools say, well, the students should really be doing that because this is the adult perception. Oh, yeah, I'm, I have a, a good relationship with Jack, and he'll come to me if there's a problem. But one of the questions we ask on our survey is, is there an adult at the school who you feel comfortable going to if you have a, a, a problem, personal or academic. And um, sometimes those numbers are really low. Sometimes they're 50, 60 percent. Sometimes they're, I think the highest we've seen is I think we've lost Denise. Hopefully she'll come back. Hopefully it's Denise that's lost and not me. I seem to still be online. Please wait. You're back. <laughs> okay. I don't know what happened. Um, Your internet could have gone down or something, but you okay. you you were only gone for about thirty seconds. Okay, good. Sorry. This no. is my other computer is hard drive put you know. Hardwired. Yeah, now yeah. no, you're good. Okay, so uh, what I loved about this book is it feels very much like a how-to manual, right? There's 10 years of challenge success, and, and this is what we think we've seen that's really worked, and we're going to share it with you and give you a lot of the tools. I kind of felt like it was the manual for extreme school makeover. Right? <laughs> you could almost pull a bus up and say, okay, you know, we're going to do this, and we're going to make it right, and... <laughs> And, and, and there is this sense of can do and it's possible and we can do it with the existing staff. So before we get into the kind of the structure of this manual or handbook, you don't say it explicitly, but it feels to me like there are some philosophies or beliefs that underlie all of the work. I mean, it keeps coming out like, um, uh, you know, one was that schools aren't broken. Right, and that to me was kind of an appreciative inquiry approach, which is uh, we need to recognize what's going well. We need to engage people based on what they're doing well. They're good people. They're capable. That not it's not just the students, right? But the teachers and staff are capable of changing, and they're capable of doing this. Did I did I catch that one right? That that's sort of a core belief that drives what you're doing. It is. It is. I think. Um a little mantra that we had when we were writing the book is no teacher bashing. And and I'm a teacher, right? There's no way I would want a teacher bash. But I know that with the media and with the um, Common Core and with even here in, in Palo Alto, what we're seeing in the papers and responses, everyone's sort of saying it's the teacher's fault. It's the student's fault. It's um, they're not doing what they should be doing. They're not trying hard enough. They're not doing their jobs. And certainly there's some crappy teachers out there. But majority of the teachers get into this profession because they care about kids and they want to help them learn. And a lot of times it's just that they're 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 on this treadmill and nobody has sort of given them the time and tools and resources to really rethink um, what's going on. So that's 
You definitely caught that right. I'm glad that you caught that. We are very much about uh, not bulldozing, and in that sense, we're probably different from extreme makeover, but really um, being reflective and um, and inclusive and forming a dialogue around what's working, what isn't, and how can we get to the next point. So I want to I want to drill down on that just a little bit more because I think that's really critical. For me, what it's done, as you've said, we need to respect every teacher we need and principal and staff we need to we need to approach them with the belief that they're capable of doing that they want to do better and we're going to help give them the tools to do so which which would then ultimately sort of translate into a model of teachers and faculty and staff doing the same thing with the students right which is giving the same level of care and concern every child's important we're not going to we're not going to just write off 30% of the kids we're not going to run off 30% of the teachers. We come in and we figure out how to help this existing group of people do what they want to do. Right. And so here's the analogy. When a teacher gives a test and um, a bunch of kids don't do well, usually sometimes what you hear is, those kids just can't learn. I have tried everything and I don't know what else to do. And then they go on to the next unit, right? <laughs> and what we're saying, wait, 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 wait. If the goal is learning, Let's let's help get there, and here's a whole bunch of strategies you can do to help the kids get there. The same applies at the school level. Here's a whole bunch of strategies you can do. At least try them. The research shows that most of the time when you do these strategies, good things happen. So let's figure out what's going on and why, if we tried it and it didn't work, do we just kind of say, ah, let's throw that one out and go on to the next one, which you often see in schools, right? It's sort of like the reform du jour. So let's really focus and let's give it some time and let's use the tools that we know have worked with other similar schools and see if we can really get there. So I don't want to oversimplify, but it does feel like there's a pretty distinct difference between a management style which says we're going to set numeric goals and hold people accountable so that they will change and come to meet our goals. And a philosophy that says we're going to go out in the field and we're going to water and we're going to hoe and we're going to, you know, cultivate and we're going to build from the ground up. Is that too stark a contrast or is that really just sort of two very different worldviews? Uh, you know, I, I, I agree with that, right? I study engagement and motivation theory and, you know, a stick only works not a whole lot. You only get so far with a with a, a, a stick and a carrot. I mean, there's other ways. And, and what we believe is you engage people by getting them excited, by relating to them, by showing them that it's relevant, by respecting them. That's for kids. That's for teachers. That's for parents. Um, and it's going to take a village to make some changes because schools are very persistent little institutions. Right, Larry Cuban and David Tyak, they just will stay the same uh, because we've all been socialized to keep doing what we do. The classroom looks like it should have chairs and rows and a teacher at the front, right? So we're trying to change something that's really hard to change and it's gonna take a lot of hoeing and mowing and weeding and gardening together to, to make that happen. I thought you were gonna say it's gonna take a lot of time and that was gonna be my next sort of philosophical <laughs> point for you, which was clearly this is more time intensive and more work than the sort of simplistic people aren't making the grade we're gonna cut teachers we're gonna hire and fire right so part of what I heard in the whole book just sort of throughout it was time is a big issue 
Yeah. There's no time in schools. If you think about an average school day, the bell rings and you are going. If you're an adult or a kid, you are going full speed ahead all the way through the day. And then all the way through after the day as you prepare your lessons or as if you're a kid, you're doing your homework or your extracurriculars. Um, and then add on media and the 24-7 sort of mentality right now of work and life. Um, that's not John Dewey. That's not how you learn. That's how you're not you don't get things done. You must reflect. It's imperative that you reflect and dialogue and take the time to really problem solve in everything that you do. So we create time for schools when they send teams to work with us. We, we build that in. That's one of the things they say is a huge luxury to just have the time to sit with the right people in the room and go back and gather more data and then sit and come back and, and reflect again. And that's what we're trying to do when we talk about the schedule changes for kids is build in time for reflection, for, for caring relationships to be cultivated. Um, that just doesn't happen on a daily basis. Yeah, I felt like time flowed through the whole book. Everything from time for play and alone time to time for students to have a good experience. Um, I'm going to keep going with the philosophy piece because it seems to be working and I've only got a couple of more. Okay, so okay. you have this example of um, the student cheating early in the book and then the sort of the school-wide interest in sort of figuring that out. And that very much felt to me like it sets the stage for looking for root causes versus symptoms. Right, this idea that you don't try and change the surface level that what you're really trying to do is figure out what's causing what's going on and that that's where you really want to do the work. And then again, that that takes time. Right. If we, um, cheating is a really good example because cheating, it, the people, schools come to us and say, oh, we have a cheating problem or we were, you know, lambasted in the news and embarrassed because all these kids cheated or changed, got hacked into the computer or whatever. And I'll say, that's not your problem. That's a symptom of a much larger problem. Let's get down to the roots. And we actually we actually have them draw a tree. It sounds kind of hokey, but this exercise has worked every time we've done it, where you draw a tree and in the branches you're putting all the manifestations of the problems that you're seeing, um, things that you are, why you came to us in the first place, right? What's the problem and what are the things not going well? Okay, those are symptoms. What's causing those? Let's take it down to the roots. And they actually have to draw the roots and talk about that and talk about, you know, how the roots relate to the, what's happening in the, in the, the branches. So, um, again, it's something we have a cheating problem. Schools immediately say, let's just come down harder. Let's have a, you know, three strikes, you're out kind of policy. Um, that's not going to change what's causing the cheating problem. You've got to get down to the fact that kids are stressed. They're overwhelmed. Maybe they don't feel the work is meaningful. Maybe they don't feel that it, the teachers care about them. So why should we you know, be honest and ethical. Uh, maybe there's so much pressure on them that they know that cheating is wrong, but they feel they have no other choice because of the large, large consequences that happen if you don't get the grades. We've got to get down to the roots and figure that out in order to solve your cheating problem. And the good thing is when you start in the roots and you start working on those, you're solving a whole bunch of problems at once. Yeah, and it feels like in those roots are beliefs. Right, and so as you're addressing the roots, you have to sort of talk about the beliefs that you have. Do you actually believe in the potential of your child? Do you actually believe in trusting people? It would seem like those beliefs become much more apparent. 
what we see in those kinds of conversations, and these are really intense conversations when we're doing the tree exercise, um, you sort of get at what's the purpose of school? What what is a uh, an ideal graduate from our school look like? What should they know and be able to do? And it's usually not calculus that comes up, right? Who are the people that we're trying to cultivate and and um, and what kind of a community do we want to be? And why is that not happening? So it's it's pretty intense and pretty aspirational. And it can be like, well, we're we're never going to get that. That's so pie in the sky. You can be you, you you can't go a little bit too far, you know. But what do we do because we have Common Core and we have testing and we have um, you know our scores can't go down. That's the last chapter of the book where everyone tries to kind of shoot it down. And I just say, look, you know. I, these are really serious issues that are going to take, again, some time and some thought, but there are schools that make this work and there's research behind it. So let's, let's try it. And by the same token, it's not a one size fits all. This is where the funders of challenge success get very frustrated because they want to see, you know, you, here's the fix, here's the immediate results. Great. We'll give you money. No, we're a more challenging story to tell. So um, it's a little, it's a little tricky. Yeah, it, you've, you've segued so perfectly for me, right? Because it feels like the, the more complex narratives, the closer we get to authenticity, the, the less easy they are to package as sort of surface level discussions. And so it does take time even to communicate about this, you know, the thoughtfulness by which you're acting. So my next point was going to be, you say that each school is unique. And I felt like that, again, is this sort of pervasive message through here, which is there is no one-size-fits-all, there's no, we can just sort of superimpose this solution on everyone. There, there's a uniqueness to every school, to every teacher, to every student that we need to respect. Right. And, and this is something, every parent knows this, right? You read in the parenting book that you're not supposed to do X, but your kid, that's not working. So you've got to try something different, right? So every parent knows. Yes, there's the research, there's sort of what I should be doing, and then there's the reality of, here's the kid in front of me. So um, the same applies to schools. If we said every school, here's, here's the one schedule and every school should follow it, or here's the one way to get at um, project-based learning and every school must do this, uh, first of all, it's going to fall flat because that's not how school reform works. Right. You 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 must personalize it. You must make it um, school specific um, or they're just going to close their door and say, you know, wait for the tide to to, to roll over. Um, but truthfully, every school is unique because there's different leaders, there's different people, there's different structures that are going to work in different communities. Um, but but it's also not anything goes. Right, so um, there are certain things we know are not really healthy anymore. The uh, I keep going back to schedule. There's a lot of examples, but I'll, I'll stick with schedule. If you have every period meeting, you know, six, seven, eight periods for 42 minutes each and five minute passing period, there's some pretty good research out there that that's not the way people learn and that's not preparing them for uh, everyday life and workplace learning, which is not broken into little categories with little five-minute breaks in between. So 
not anything goes, but that said, with the, the research around learning and schedules, there's a lot of different ways to build a healthy schedule. Yeah, and that's a great example too, the whole, the whole piece on scheduling and all the material you give and all the background and information. I mean, you're, you're clearly really trying to help people to understand the fuller picture and how they would make decisions as a community about what they were going to do. That's the goal because um, you've got some tough decisions and the other pitfall that we see is people try to take on too much. So they read the book and they say, okay, this is the blueprint now. We're going to do everything in the book and we're going to be the perfect school. That's not going to happen, right? You can do everything in the book and not be the perfect school, obviously. But you can also um, try to rush things. A principal will say, we're going to do this, but he hasn't taken the time to get the buy-in and really understand what, how to do something to make it stick. So that's the ocean liner. You know, when you turn a really big ship, you don't just make a hard right. You have to turn it slowly in order for it to be safe. And that's the only way that the school reform is going to stick. So let me suggest one final philosophical note here. Okay. Uh, uh, in the book it says, uh, one of the mantras Denise Pope teaches in her curriculum class at Stanford is opportunities for voice, choice, revision, and redemption. Redemption seems to me to be this huge issue that is being threatened by the tracking of students, right? This ability to see pathways for students to shift and change and redo. So I don't know that you actually drill down too much on that, but it felt to me like that's a really significant issue. When you are seven years old or 17 years old, your brain is not fully developed. Your body is not fully developed even. Um, it doesn't make sense to hold people permanently accountable when they are in process. Um, and I think adults need redemption too, but I mean, especially with kids. So when we have these policies where you know you've got C's and D's in a class and you've done the math and there is no hope for you to get higher than a C or a D in the class, why would you try? Why would you even check in? So we have to have these policies for student voice and choice and, and revision and redemption be, because otherwise we're going to lose a bunch of kids. But on top of that, it is how it works in the real world. I don't do something once ever without having someone look at it. I We had many eyes on this book. And then when we turned it in, we had another set of eyes from the publisher and the copy editor. You know, it's very, very rare. And I think I've said this maybe on your past show, but I'm going to say it again. It's really rare in a situation where you're told at work, tomorrow you're going to have a test. Um, you don't know what's on it. You can't use any of the resources you're used to, any of your colleagues, any of the computers, any of your notes. Um, it's going to be timed. It's going to be extremely high stakes. Like your bonus is going to depend on it. Um, and I'm the sole arbitrator. It, that never happens. It takes time and iteration and revision to put out good quality work. So 
that's not what happens on a typical day in school where you take a test. It's, you know, it's timed. You can't use any of the resources. You don't know what's on it. Surprise. And then you move on to the next unit. That's just craziness. So it's really a testament to how we assess kids, but also, as you say, the larger philosophy of, of course you need opportunities for redemption. What kind of world are we living in where everyone is perfect right when they come out? What's the point of school then? You know, if they're supposed to know it immediately, boom, doesn't make sense. Love it. Okay, so the structure of the book is based on this acronym SPACE. Right, so largely the book follows uh, you've got some interspersed chapters that are that are fun, but they don't completely follow it. But largely, it's <laughs> student schedule and use of time, project-based learning, alternative and authentic assessment, climate of care, and educating faculty, parents, and students. So, in the 20 minutes we have left, there's no way to cover all of that. But but maybe let's pick one from each and kind of see. You know, we've talked a little bit about student schedules and time. We haven't touched at all on the idea of student sleep and the, sort of the biological piece, and I think that might be interesting to spend a minute or two sort of describing. Yeah, sleep. So I, in my house, and my kids will tell you this, if everybody got the sleep they needed, and I mean in the world, if everybody got the sleep they needed, it would be a different place. We know so much more about sleep today than we did even, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, biologically, what, kids need sleep and they need much more than they're typically getting. And when you add on to that a level of stress and a very hectic schedule and school times that start pretty early, earlier than a typical teen is really ready to be awake and working, you have a problem. So one of the things we talk about in schedule is start times. And this idea that we've seen, and actually there's great research now with lots and lots and lots of schools done to show that when you start the school later, when you push that start time, um, your teenagers actually are more awake and they're going to do better overall in school. They get more sleep because they get that extra hour. Um, and there's all sorts of reasons why schools don't want to do this. Bus schedules and commute times and parents have to drop their kids off at the same time anyway. We have, like, in the weeds in the book, very specific arguments against all those and a case, case studies that show you can work this out. It may seem hard, but if we know that this is better for kids physically and mentally, you should try everything you can to make it happen. Yeah, the, 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 clearly the change efforts in the book are measured in years. <laughs> right? I mean, it's yeah. very clear. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so... Um, there's, there's lots more in there, and it's well worth looking at and reading. Um, and it involves things as much like moving semester exams and kind of how your your schedules through the year and holiday time, and and then of course, you know, the long chapter on homework, uh, which we won't rehearse here, but uh, again, sort of the research on the uh, the history of homework and sort of the short story of um, does it actually work? And the uh, answer is <laughs> not, the, not really. Well, it depends. At the elementary school level, really, no. You should be having them do free reading. Middle school, it should be really good, meaningful homework and nothing more than an hour. And in high school, again, really relevant, meaningful, engaging, mostly to prepare for the next class and nothing more in total uh, than two hours. That's what the, the research says. It's um, it's a sticky wicket for sure, and we have whole workshops on how to make more meaningful 
developmentally appropriate homework assignments. You know, at this point, I actually wanted a whole chapter on family. Mm. Right? I mean, you talk about family when you talk about the educating the whole school. But one of the things that we discovered when we did some homeschooling was that we had this incredibly beautiful period of time in the evenings where we actually could be together as a family. And it feels like the research shows that maybe even more than what takes place at school, what takes place in the family and in the students' home circumstances is a more of an influence on their ultimate educational outcome. Is that in harmony with what you, you know? It is, it is. We have this mnemonic aid in that chapter called PDF, and it stands for Playtime, Downtime, Family Time. Each of those things, Playtime, Downtime, Family Time, are research-based. They're protective factors for kids, um, and they're so often what's missing in the busy, busy 24-7 kind of day. And family time especially um, is the, the reason why it works. And, and by the way, family can be broadly defined, right? So. <clears throat> there's all kinds of families. Don't feel like it has to be this nuclear unit, um, kumbaya dinner table every night. What it is is really time spent um, feeling like you're part of a unit of unconditional love. And um, what happens when adults and kids get together uh, in, a, in a loving relationship is you learn how to be human. You learn what it's like to um, to feel love and and how to how to reciprocate. Um, th that's why we talk about things like chores. You know, this is what you do as part of a family. Um, um, communication skills, talking. It's nothing magical about you know what you're doing at that time. It's not the Yahtzee game or the movie or the chicken dinner. It's it's the feeling of being part of an unconditional unit of love and the joy that comes from that. Um, and it sounds a little, I don't know, new agey, but, but the research will show that that's absolutely critical for human beings. And I think it's, it, and we know it's critical for sort of future citizens of, of this world. And homework, unfortunately, can, can, break into that time where kids have no time for this. There's other reasons why kids may have no time for family. You've got double working families. You've got kids working jobs till 10, 11 o'clock at night to help put food on the table. Everybody, those kids too, you need to build in time as much as possible to spend as a unit and to know what it's like to feel that unconditional love. So you addressed that in the, in the E portion of the acronym, right? The educating faculty, parents, and students. In, and you talk about parent education and about parents being the students too. And that's one thing I actually worry about when I watch some initiatives that take place, which is that the schools see the lack of something and they bring it into the school. And, and, and in some ways that even disempowers the families more. So it feels like this is a really tricky area of supporting families, but realizing you're not really in charge of the families. Right. And, and, um, this is one of those areas about uh, one size doesn't fit all because in a parochial school, let's say, where parents are choosing that school in part because of the value system, they may feel very comfortable and, and want to partner with the school in, in terms of um, what's going on in parent education and whatnot because there's a choice there, right? In public schools, hmm, how far do you go here? And um, do we have a right to tell people how to parent? 
Um, and again, it's sort of, when I work with teachers, especially when I'm, I'm talking with new teachers, I say, because of the way the world is right now, you are a teacher of parents as well as a teacher of students. You kind of don't have a choice because there's so many myths out there. Uh, and there's so many parents who don't realize what they're doing in the name of love is really kind of harming their kids. Um, and parents can march with their feet and not show up to these education sessions um, and not read the teacher newsletter or whatever it is if, if they want to. Okay, so before we get off of the student schedule and use of time, I still want to I still want to stick with the S and students there because again, throughout the book, there are lots of examples of ways in which you involve the students in the change process, right? From as simple as just getting feedback to actually being an active part of the change. So I'm, I take it that's sort of a significant part of what your your interest is. Right. I mean, I'm I. This is one of the 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 bedrocks of my research is student voice. Uh, they are living it day in and day out. They know better. We, there's this great example where the school was changing the schedule and they made lunch a half an hour long in the, in the name of getting more time for learning and doing some other really good things. And the students on that committee, and thank goodness there were students on that committee, I mean, that's part of what we mandate, um, said, you know, we can't get through the lunch line in 30 minutes. There's, there's no way. So you need the people who are living it every day who are doing it to really weigh in. That's another reason why we have the shadow day protocol, which is at the end of the book. Uh, we actually have a whole protocol and lesson plan for how schools can hire substitutes and have teachers shadow students for the day um, and see what it's like to go through and sit for 40 minutes and then run around and then, you know, and then try to go home and try to do the homework and see your exhaustion level and see your engagement level and see what that's like. The more you can get at that real student experience and, and through the student's eyes or, 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 or other ways, otherwise, uh, the better because they're the end users. There's an article I've carried around for a couple of decades now about a prison warden named Dennis Luther who uh, actually involved the prisoners in um, preparing and planning the meals and all the activities of the prison. I don't want to draw a comparison here because that's not an appropriate <laughs> segue, but it was, it was, what's interesting is that you know the, the recidivism rates went way down, the violence went way down, it was super successful, but it didn't catch on, right? And so I can see where schools that do a really good job of engaging students in voice and decision making and participation, that these are really positive things when have a positive outcome. But I can also see where it would be hard for them to catch on. Uh, it's hard. It's there's a whole bunch of issues why it doesn't catch on. I mean, even we even run into this where we say you've got to have a meeting, but that meeting time must include kids. So that means you can't meet really during the school day because you can't pull a kid out of class, even if the vice principal and the teacher and the counselor all have that time free. It sounds like a little minute detail, but finding the time to meet, to have the kids part of the meeting becomes very difficult. Then it means they're meeting after school and now you're taking away that time. So there's lots of reasons why it wouldn't catch on. You also have to really think about power and power issues. And at some point, um, it's not going to be a consensus model of decision making. 
Uh, and there's a good example with the school I'm working with now, and I won't say the name, but the kids are really upset about the late start. They don't want it. Um, even though we've shown them the research and everything and the adults on, on the committee all understand and, and they are going to move forward, the kids are upset because some of their best classes happen during what's called zero period band jazz band um journalism uh you know so yearbook those kinds of things and i keep saying we're gonna find a place for those we're not cutting jazz we're just saying that you can't take it at seven o'clock in the morning but they don't want to give up other things right so they are what you do have to balance it's sort of like what you know who's the parent here and who who gets to decide it's not a total democracy in my house either with three kids right at some point you have to say i'm looking ahead and i can see the train wreck that's about to happen and your prefrontal cortex is not fully formed yet and i've got to be the adult but it's it's very much dialogue based um and and done in a loving way uh and at some point someone's gonna have to make a, a tough decision in five minutes we're not going to cover the rest of the acronym uh i'm just going to point out that in the project-based learning section you actually have a chapter on ap exams yeah and that was really brilliant for me um and i wonder if i wrote the quote down here yeah there is Basically, it was there's no data to support that the taking of AP exams actually increases college acceptances or um, how you, how well you do or reduces financial requirements. Is that uh, did I get that close to right? You got it close to right. So there's no data to support that just taking the AP courses will do that. There's a little tiny bit of data that says you get a little bit of a bump in college if you take an AP test, even if you um, you know, either take or don't take the course. But in the grand scheme, we have so many kids now who are pushing themselves to take these advanced placement courses. And it's a, it's a much deeper, you, you gotta read the chapter to get some of the nuances, but you're right, you captured the fact that this is not the magic bullet. Um, and um, a lot of these kids are taking it for the wrong reason. A lot of these classes are under the guise of being sort of a college level course when they're really not, when they're really watered down, or it's just sort of this march through memorization. And the reason why we attached it in that project-based learning section is because what colleges really want is kids who know how to think and do, um, you know, real experimentation and research, not uh, the sort of fake, you know, labs that you, you do this to turn the water blue um, uh, kind of science that you would see in some of these AP courses, some of which don't even do labs. Um, and many of which are just sort of memorize the facts and then spit it back. To be fair, the College Board is trying to change this um, because they realize the limitations but um, it's taken a while. And it's pretty clear in the chapter that you, the school has to be able to communicate to admissions officers that they're not doing the AP program if they're not doing it and the kids are still having challenging work because it does become kind of a shorthand. I know in our daughter's school the shorthand for the students with AP classes is those are the classes where the teachers and students are actually engaged. Right. If you don't take the AP class, you're going to be with a lot of bored kids, the teachers are going to be frustrated, and it's not a good experience. Right. And and we hear that from parents a lot. So when you're trying to not um, plan an overloaded schedule for your kid, and you're looking at, well, if she doesn't take that top class, she's going to be really bored, there's no middle ground. 
So one of the things that we say at the end of that chapter is maybe it's worth your money to do professional development across the board to learn how to have all classes be engaging and challenging and not just pull this drain of the sort of brighter, more motivated kids with the bright, you know, motivated teacher at the top. And then you're left with, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a form of brain drain is what they would say. So we want all classes to be challenging, appropriately challenging and engaging. And one of the exciting things I saw is um, mixed classes where you have all the kids are benefiting from the real high level discussions and readings, but some of them are taking it for the AP and AP level and some are taking it as regular students. And it takes a, a really good teacher to know how to balance that. And some have longer tests or a little bit more work, but everybody's benefiting from the high level discussion and engagement. Let's finish with the climate of care, right? So in the book you say that students need to feel that they are part of a caring and cohesive community. I thought what was interesting about that phrasing was feeling like you're part of a cohesive and caring community isn't necessarily the same as being in a cohesive and caring <laughs> community. And I didn't know if that was a conscious word choice or if there is a progression here where you kind of have to go through the motions and put things into place and then the community sort of evolves into being more genuinely caring and cohesive. Yeah, no, it's a good catch and it was on purpose. Um, th this, is, this is why it's in there. When I go into a school, teachers will say, of course we care. Why the heck would we have joined this profession? Of course this is a caring community. And I say, but the students have to perceive that. The students have to feel that it's caring and cohesive. So you're, part of it is right in that the more everybody sort of buys in and realize, then it actually becomes, right? Because you, it, it has to be a two-way street or it's not gonna be that way. Um, and that's part of what that DOT project um, at, at Wheatley School or the CARD project does is you're trying to establish that, but we really do need the students to perceive that. And, and their perception sometime of a caring teacher is different from what the, the teacher thinks that they're showing. So I ran a con uh, session at a conference recently where I asked the group of about 50 teachers how many of them worked in a school where they had a defined culture of learning by, from, you know, through which or by which decisions were made. And one teacher raised the hand. In your experience, how explicit are the beliefs about learning in most schools and, and as a result of this, do you find of all of these sort of things that you've identified as very practical, pragmatic ways of, of helping schools and students, do you find that they are building a better sense of what learning is? I think through the dialogue about what's the problem, what are we trying to do, what's our end goal, and the thoughtfulness, you are consciously building a learning culture and a, and a decision-making culture and an institutional culture uh, for positive change. I think it's not for lack of trying that these cult that, that people don't feel like they have this culture, but it's because this is how we do things, this is how we always do things, and, um, and tomorrow I've got to get to chapter two. It's, it's not that people are consciously not doing it it's just sort of like who the heck has time to do that we are flooded and we gotta go you know we are um you're you're driving the airplane while building it right <laughs> you, you 
you still have to teach class tomorrow. You can't stop everything and take three weeks and rethink the project uh, because these kids are coming tomorrow and you got to do something with them. It's hard. Okay. Thanks, Denise. The book is Overloaded and Underprepared Strategies for Stronger Schools and Healthy, Successful Kids. It was a delightful three or four hours that, that I got to spend with the book. I hope that you'll pick it up. Thanks, Denise. Thanks, Steve. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good day. Yeah, Bye, you everybody. too. Bye.